Welcome to episode five of Prog Notes, where we bring you reviews of albums from the Progressive Rock archives. My name's Destin. And I'm Drew. And today we're listening to the Progressive Rock Milestone in the Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson. I'm excited for this. I am too. This is an important band for anyone who wants to know about Prague. In the Court of the Crimson King. This was their date. This was King Crimson's debut album released in, or excuse me, released October 10th, 1969. Uh, this is two weeks after The Great Abbey Road by The Beatles came out and just a week before the album Led Zeppelin II by Pink Floyd. And so, uh, whoa, this, whoa. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I Obviously, know. yeah, it's, I know. I was going to fly by that because of how dry that's supposed to be, but we caught it there. Of course, yeah. Obviously, Led Zeppelin 2 was released by Led Zeppelin, but this album was kind of sandwiched by two really, really great albums. So it, uh, the fact that it kept its place and wasn't overshadowed, you know what I mean, by all these other albums, uh, kind of says something about this record. You yeah, know? it's also pretty incredible. I mean, we'll, we'll discuss later all the elements in play on this record, but it's also pretty incredible that this was their debut album and it made such an impact. You know, oh, yeah. And they were young. They were young. All these musicians were starting out. They were in their early 20s. They were very yeah, young yeah. guys, and they made such a tremendous impact on, on rock, and, and well, we'll talk about it later. Specifically prog of, rock. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people consider this the first progressive rock album. So yeah. uh, we'll, we'll talk awesome. about that more later. Yeah. And so this, uh, this episode of Prog Notes, we've been challenged, I believe, not only to share this record with everyone, but also for everyone to go and find a copy of it, too. Uh, this record is uh, extremely hard to find. I think that has to do, and Drew, you were saying this, I think it has something to do with the founder, Robert Fripp. Um, you just, you, I don't think, you can't find this album on streaming apps like Spotify or Apple Music. Um, I believe YouTube has it. Hey, everyone, it's Destin. New update. King Crimson has now released all of their material on Spotify when we recorded this episode. All of it wasn't there. So now you can feel free to go on to Spotify and listen to all of King Crimson's discography, including this record, In the Court of the Crimson King. We'll get back to the episode. Uh, In the Court of the Crimson King. This is a beautiful starting point for someone getting into prog rock. It's, in, it's so intentionally ahead of its time. Uh, it engages the listeners in a very, very artful and deeply emotional way, which I think something Cream Crimson does as a whole very, very well. And uh, especially with this being their debut album and it being released in 1969, uh, it definitely made an impact, just like these other records that we've been listening to. I mean, what? when did... Oh, crap. I know that we literally just did the record, but when did Sgt. Pepper's come out? Was it in August 1967? Or, excuse Wait. me, yeah, two years. I mean, 19- it, was, it was like two years before yeah yeah i yeah. was thinking it was around the exact same time though but either it was way, june no it was june, june? it was okay. june first okay. in the uk and then june 2nd in america i got gotcha. you <clears throat> for sergeant peppers 1967 so okay yeah so it's yeah. awesome well the members okay so the members of king crimson uh we'll go over this for just a second so uh the first member we have is mr robert fripp who plays guitars um we have mr greg lake sang vocals and played bass. We have Michael Giles on the drums and Mr. Ian McDonald, who played woodwinds and keys. Uh, This lineup only lasted this album uh, because the other musicians, I think, went off and did their own stuff. Uh, Greg Lake started ELP, which is going to be a a very familiar name that we'll talk about very soon. I think we'll we'll, we'll do an ELP record within the next couple of episodes. Uh, And he also later joined Asia for a brief moment. Is that right? Yeah, I Brief think it moment. was for about a year or something. 
Okay. So yeah. So a brief moment. And then Mr. E. McDonald also was one of the founding members of Foreigner. So uh, these these are all really, really, really good musicians. And uh, but Fripp is the only musician to stay with King Crimson throughout all of the phases. And uh, and we'll talk about Robert Fripp for a good amount because his impact on progressive rock alone, just as one human being, is incredible. The things he's done uh, in in the genre. And uh, the guy looks, I mean, <laughs> the guy looks like he should be in NASA. Like he just, he just looks like a nerd. You know what I mean? <laughs> he, looks, he, just looks like, he just looks like a, I mean, big, oh, that's horrible. I know. It's like, welcome to Prognotes. This guy looks like a nerd. Oh, man. But I mean, the guy is, he's <laughs> wild, man. He's super, he's super cerebral. You know, um, very a very head. You can tell this guy's just very heady. He's very well spoken when he speaks. Definitely introverted guy. Um, not not a performer. He, he's just he's not a performer. He's he's an innovator. You know, he's not the typical jumping around the stage kind of Roger Daltrey kind of deal. He is a very very cerebral, innovative guy who uh, belonged in a studio. Uh, but you know, just around around the around the guitar uh dude is just, dude's crazy you know but can be very very appreciated so uh <laughs> something <laughs> dude something i just thought of i mean think about it this think about their like their shows right i mean he's sitting down at the shows yeah yeah like he sits down <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like when when you go and see if you went to go see cream uh, gosh i can't speak king crimson if you went to go see King Crimson, you're basically going to watch a bunch of professional athletes, not a show. You know what I mean? Like you, you just you go to see these great athletes rather than a typical rock show. You know, it's it's not a, it's not about the the smokes and the, and the and the lasers and the mirrors and the jumping around and the high energy. This was really about going and seeing something that was how in the world are they doing this live? And that was that was what he was about. Again, you said he was in the studio a lot, and I think that's where he probably preferred most of his time. I believe was, so too. He just really enjoyed experimenting, and uh, yeah, and he wanted a group that shared that that uh, that appreciation for experimentation, Absolutely. music, and and innovation. And so I think that's just where he he preferred to, to spend his time, and that's kind of what this this group was, what this band was for him. It was a science lab almost. So yeah, absolutely. So so Drew, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, King Crimson and uh, kind of their their phases because they they definitely had uh, spans of years where they were delete release albums, and then they didn't have years where they or they had years where they didn't release much of anything. So it's almost like it's not like they had a revolving door of members, but keep you know releasing albums like Yes did. This was more of, you know, we're going to release three albums and then wait another 10, five years or whatever, then release a couple more albums. Could you uh, yeah, kind of yeah. elaborate on what did th- what did this phase look like for King, King Crimson at the start? Well, like you said, this was the first album for them. Um, and I think Greg Lake and Robert Fripp were already friends. They actually took from the same guitar teacher. Um, he, when I say he, uh, Greg Lake did not learn bass first. He was the bassist on this record and vocalist, but he learned guitar first along with Fripp. 
And, you know, when Fripp approached him, hey, I want to, I want to get this group together. I want to do something different. I want to do something new and unique. I know you, you know, I, I trust that you're a great musician, but we can't really have two guitar players. I need a bass player. Do you think you'd be cool to cover that? And he was just like, yeah, it's just two less strings. Okay, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'll right. do that. And um, so that's anyways, it's I just find that interesting because I always think of him as a bass player because he also played that in ELP. Granted, he also played guitars in ELP as right. well. But um, I just I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm a bass player. So I see him more as a bass player. But right. um, anyways, um, and then he, you know, he met Michael Giles, who is the the drummer on it um, from a project. Did I mispronounce his name? That. I think it's Giles. I don't know. In an interview I heard with um, Greg Lake about this. Um, uh, from a podcast called uh, In the Studio with Redbeard, which everyone should check out. He does phenomenal interviews with uh, a lot of great musicians. Um, with Greg Lake, I'm pretty sure he pronounces it Giles, but it could be one of those, you know, okay. you know, British type of pronunciations as opposed to American. But since it's a name, I feel like I should trust the British pronunciation because sure. they were all from England. So, right. um, <clears throat> so I think it's Giles. I could be wrong. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he had been in a, a group with, uh, Michael Giles and his brother, and I forget his name. I feel horrible, but it was a group called Giles, Giles and Fripp. So that's how he knew uh, Michael Giles to get him in on this. Um, and after the first record, it's uh, from what I heard, uh, it just they didn't really care for touring. They did a tour in America, I think, and um, I'm pretty sure. Ian McDonald and Michael Giles just didn't really care for the touring, at least with that um, particular group. And Greg Lake only did one more record um, with King Crimson, the one directly after that in the wake of Poseidon. And uh, it was seven then on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and then from then on, they just kind of, uh, they, you know, he picked and choose and chose musicians from around, but he, um, eventually uh got a lineup that was pretty solid with uh bill bruford who was the drummer for yes before um that's you know right, he left yeah. he left them in 72 or 73 they released close to the edge which was the last record he did with them i'm pretty sure he toured with them with that record at least in 72 and then he uh you know he went off and i think pretty soon after if not immediately after he joined king crimson with robert fripp so bill bruford was in that lineup along with john wetton who was also the front man for Asia for a fair amount of time and did a lot of their hits. Um, so that was, they became a trio at that point. And then they stopped. And like you said earlier, they just kind of went through these phases where they, you know, would do stuff. And then Fripp would say, no, I'm going to work with some other people for a while. And for several years did not do anything with King Crimson at all. And then would pick it back up. And it's interesting uh, from what I've read for Fripp, King Crimson is not necessarily a, you know, particular group of people, it's quote unquote, a way of doing things. Oh, I love that. So, Oh, I uh, wish I found that. Yeah. So he, he was like, I don't care exactly who it is as long as they can get behind this methodology, right? This way I approach music in this group. That's what this group is for. And if you're on board for that kind of philosophy, boom, that's what King Crimson See, is. That just, that right there, just, I mean, from the brief description that I gave of Robert Fripp, that is the exact thing I would expect someone like him to do. You yeah, know, he's it, very is, experimental. He's, um, he's very about the innovation. He's very about mm -hmm. the idea of something existing a particular way, and he's going to mold himself to fit that box. Right. That is such a that. Oh my gosh. So, so they did. Go go everybody when they're while you're listening to this, go onto Google 
and type in Robert Fripp. That's F-R-I-P-P. And just look at a picture of this guy and tell me it doesn't sound like he, that's something that he would do. That's just um, hilarious. So so they they had that lineup, that trio, for a couple of years. I think they did about three or four albums with just that trio. And then they stopped for several years. I think 74 or okay. 76 was when Red came out. And then they came back in 81 with the same drummer and the same guitarist, but John Wetton was not there. He was not on bass and vocals. It was Adrian Ballou as a second guitarist and Tony Levin as the bassist slash Chapman stick uh, rhythm player. And those guys Um, are ridiculous. Oh, yeah. They're phenomenal musicians as well. Um, And he did three albums with them. Uh, and then they stopped for again, you know, a while. Anyways, I don't have to go through all of it, but it was very much that kind of stop and go thing where yeah. when he felt like it, he would get some musicians together and do it. But um, on the subject of King Crimson, you were talking about who they are and I went over their history. They're also yeah. one of those bands where you probably have not heard of them. You know, I don't want to say that to anyone listening because then they're like, no, I know. But, um, and, and, and honestly, I mean, to to that point, though, I think part of the reason why people don't know who they are is because uh, their stuff isn't it, it hasn't reached the modern period of of you know modern mu- you know listening of music where we have streaming well, and stuff like that you, uh, right it's it's quite um, hard to find it you have to usually get their stuff on cd you know what i'm saying that's 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 part of it the accessibility is quite limited yes but i will also say uh just being super blunt here i love this record that we're reviewing which we'll actually get into in a second uh the context is important though but uh i love i love this record and i love discipline which is their comeback record in 81 um those are both two phenomenal albums however i have i have heard a couple of their other things uh in between and they are not one of those bands where i'm like consistently each record is going to be great there because some of the stuff is just too experimental and even in this record even this record which i really love there's there's a song called moonchild where it's like the first two minutes is very lilting and dreamlike and it's very beautiful and i love it and then there's another 10 full minutes it's a 12 minute song 10 full minutes of them just kind of screwing around in the studio and it really like there there was no exact structure yeah at all at all there was no hint of a structure in that song at, at you know, the rest of those remaining 10 minutes. And that's kind of how Robert Fripp was. And in fact, Greg Lake even admits that in, in an interview he did about this record when he was talking about it, he said the Giles, Giles and Fripp project he did before that. It was, it was like that. It was like Moonchild, but like almost every track, it was just too out there. It was some stuff that just wasn't to be completely honest. Good. It just wasn't good. It was yeah. so experimental that there was no way that any person could say, yeah, I'll turn that record on again. Yeah. It was it was a part of creating like I believe what King Crim- when King Crimson's at their best I think what's something that that comes out in their music is that the the sense of their their incredible masterful playing and their experimentation combined with the usage of patterns to make things enjoyable rather than changing it so much over the course of an entire nine minute song to where you just feel exhausted at the end of it yeah you know and I th- yeah. I think uh, that this record I. There are definitely some wonder, I mean, fantastic moments on this record where they did that. I mean, the, the first track that we listened to is called 21st Century Schizoid Man, which is, in my personal opinion, I, I think it's probably my favorite on the record. Yeah, uh, it's, besides, my, it's mine too. Yeah, but it's just, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's just got big energy. I love it. Yes. Yeah, and it's a massive opening too. And it's it's it got a lot of. It's got a lot of great experimentation, but you also can follow the form of the song very well. Um, 
they, they come well, back, I believe. I mean, they, they have their stints where they kind of go on tangents and rants, you know, musical rants for, yeah, yeah you know, but for me, for me, it's just one of those things where it's like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And right. uh, this one, it really works. Yeah. Um, for that track. So even if, even if they aren't the best band in the world, I mean, obviously King Crimson is a way of doing things. And so I think the reason why they're on our show and on prog notes is because progressive rock is a way of doing things. I believe. I think uh, progressive rock is, uh, I mean, a way of doing things in the sense of we're getting out of the box. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we want to do something more than just a typical three chord song and throw a bridge in the middle of it. And there, there's our hit tune. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing against that, but that's not what prog rock is about. It's when did he say that? When did he say that about King Crimson being a way of doing things? Oh, I don't know. Was it like really the... early in their career? Was it later in the career? Was I don't know. I would anticipate later if someone were to ask him why the lineup has changed so much, there must have been at least some span of time for people to notice that his lineup had changed several times. Okay. So I would I would I would guess that, but do not quote me on that. Okay. I I mean the only reason why I asked that is because if if he said that at the you know, if like I'm Robert Fripp in 1969 and I'm saying I want to record this album and I want to start a band that's a way of doing things and a way of getting out of the box. That's literally one man defining progressive rock as a genre. Right. Um, and a, a lot of people consider this the first progressive rock album. I said that a little bit early, uh, earlier in, in the episode, but I, I, every, every like review I've seen about this and why people consider it is because it, it was rock. You could definitely tell the influences of, you know, electric bass and drums and the, the energy of it just kind of felt raucous, kind of felt like, like rock, but yeah. it, it combined elements of jazz and symphonic slash orchestral music with that. Yeah. And that was just something that had not really been done before. And the complexity too, the drumming is phenomenal. In fact, in fact, let me pull up the little accolade it, it earned um, in 2014. Uh, Rhythm Magazine voted it in 2014 the eighth best drumming album in the history of prog rock, which is something to say. Oh, dude, the, the drums on this record. That's that's something to say because, because uh, as we said earlier, prog rock is typically a bit more complicated it's a bit more challenging and out of all of the prog rock albums out there which there are quite a few this was considered the eighth best one that that's something to say yeah i mean if if you listen to this i mean obviously listen this listening to this album now in 2018 2019 whatever you know this is when you listen to the drums on this record it sounds like it could be on a modern a modern album like it, it could sound like it could be on the radio today on a on a new song that's being released but it also has that analog sound that old yeah. sound to it which definitely does give it more character yeah but, the kit just sounds so organic yes in this yes. compared to like some some drums today that just sound i mean they're good it's just they, they sound just so produced yes. and this just sounds so raw Absolutely. and i love it yeah and it you know it, it still has that the punchiness the panning that was something that i noticed as well the panning of the drums you know when we when pans, you know, panning meaning like having stuff in a left speaker and a right speaker, if you're not familiar. But what drums normally are produced as is they they pan each of the toms and the snare and the kick drum. They pan it in a in a spectrum of you sitting behind the kit or actually being in front of it. At the very beginning, when panning started to come out, and we had a pan knob for the first time, people didn't know what to do. Which is why you listen to like Beatles records and all of the drums are in the left speaker. It's like what the heck, you know? It's like they they were messing around with oh let's throw that over there let's throw that over there and this is a lot more methodical when approaching 
putting the drums in a stereo sense and keeping things really wide. That's the biggest, the best word, excuse me, to describe it is it keeps the drums wide in the mix and makes it very, um, you're kind of enclosed and captured behind the kit. You can, you can right. play the drums to, and, and you can almost feel as if you're sitting behind the kit listening to this. Rush did a phenomenal job of doing that when they, when they started releasing their records. They, they, they did that exact same thing where you could literally, while listening to it, place yourself behind the kit. And now almost every rock record's like that. Every single right. one is like that, where you can place yourself behind the kit and play the drums as if you're you know, listening to it. In, the ter in terms of space, like the hi-hats are on the left, the right is on the right, the crashes and the toms going from left to right, obviously, if you're a right-handed player. But uh, that's something that I really, really enjoy about listening to this record is the panning, actually. Because, you know, me being a drummer, I like to place myself behind the kit, you know, kind of envision the, the guy playing, um, which right. is just something I naturally do as a musician. But uh, it's, it's really cool. If, if you've never listened to music that way, I know that you have. I mean, you play air drums all the time, you know? I do. But I do. You, wa you walk down the halls in high school playing air drums. That's how, that's how much confidence this guy has. But uh, I did. So, well, let's let's dive into the record then. Um, so this this album only has five songs on it, but they did a lot with those five songs. They are, I mean, it's a full. I mean, how long is the record? Fifty minutes, something like that. Forty, mm -hmm. fifty minutes, uh, something like. That. Yeah, it's got to be like forty, forty-five. Yeah, um, which isn't really long, but uh, it, uh, that's a pretty decent amount of time. Yeah. And tracks, uh, just like we talked with with Rush. But see, in this one, there's no real like big epic of story or anything. There's no real like sidelong work, right? That's right. There's uh, there's there's five tracks, and some are long. Like Moonchild, I talked about earlier, was like twelve minutes. Yeah. Um, Epitaph is a fairly lengthy song as well. All, all of them are fairly lengthy. I don't think there's anything. The shortest song in the album is "I Talk to the Wind." which is the second track, and that's six minutes long. I was about to say, there's nothing under four minutes on this yep. record. But, but back to my point of what I usually made, or that I made before, way off on the very first episode. Don't think that's a six-minute, don't let a six-minute song scare you, because with King Crimson, I mean, they, they take these, that, those six minutes on a journey. You know, it, yeah, it's, not, it's, not a law, it's not a large repetition of the exact same stuff for six minutes. It takes you on a journey. And so uh, let's go ahead and listen to this thing, man. This is um, actually, let's listen to I Talk to the Wind. Let's play that in the background while we, uh, while we talk about this thing. So um, this is actually, I mean. I, I, love, I love the positioning of this song on this record because it's right after this massive in-your-face high-energy song called 21st Century Schizoid Man with yeah. a lot of, you know, really insane coordination, just so much energy behind it. And you just get blown away by seeing, you know, and hearing 21st Century Schizoid Man. And then this is such a complete contrast. 180. It's a complete 180. Complete. It's just the complete opposite direction. Those lilting flutes going on and the drums are so much softer. Uh, the voice is so much softer, and it's yeah, beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful song. What I really love about it is that I mean, I mean, everybody probably heard at the very beginning that the, the opening track was the opening track on the album, "21st Century Schizoid Man," which is basically early heavy metal, dude. I mean, that song is that song just rocks. Oh yeah, you know, literally and figuratively. You know, I mean, it just <laughs> that, that that song just rocks. And but what's cool though is that. All of the vocals, I think, on 
on the first song are really they have a lot of like weird distortion effects. Yes, distortion. Oh, it's super on distorted. It. Yeah. Yeah, and it really hides. And I mean, they, they obviously did that on purpose. But Greg Lake has a very, very approachable voice, a very sweet melodic kind of, you know, just just simple. I mean, it's a very simple voice. Yeah. Um, very easily accessible. And I love mm-hmm. the contrast of when it switches from that song to this one because his voice is just raw yeah. on this and and it's just him singing almost like a ballad a lullaby yeah and i love that because greg lake has a a great voice i think yeah it's a cool song it's, it's a really, really cool, cool song, song. Yeah. uh interesting to note they kind of list him as a member of the band though i don't think he played live but the lyricist was peter sinfield uh, yeah, now I you saw didn't, that. You didn't mention him earlier. I think I they like to credit him with uh, with kind of being a member of the band because that was his role. He was the lyricist. I think Greg Lake said he came in here and there and cleaned up some of the lyrics. Cleaned up, you know what I'm saying. He, he he changed some of the lyrics here and there, but the the primary lyricist was a guy named Peter Sinfield. Uh, yeah. I just thought that was interesting to note that they kind of had someone set aside just for that. You know. Um, yeah. So that's cool. That's cool. Something I've noticed as well when I'm listening to this, with the woodwinds, I think King Crimson had a had a big, a big impact on bringing bringing woodwinds to to progressive rock. I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking about later progressive rock albums and later progressive rock like bands. Jethro Tull. <laughs> Je- I'm I'm thinking of Jethro Tull. I'm also thinking yeah. of Genesis. Genesis and Peter yeah, Gabriel. Peter Gabriel, yeah. Um, I'm also thinking of, and this is more modern, but I'm also thinking of Stephen Wilson. Stephen Wilson has, uh, on his solo prog albums, he has a lot of woodwinds. He has clarinets and flutes and stuff. Right. Well, we it. mentioned a while back in a couple episodes ago that a big element, uh, a common element through a lot of prog rock is uh, a classical influence. So using Absolutely. these orchestral instruments in there is is just kind of iconic for that. Uh, genre of music but uh, it's interesting to know you said Stephen Wilson you're a big fan Dustin I don't know if you oh, know yeah. this in 2009 he worked with Robert Fripp to remaster he did yep. uh, this this record in the Court of the Crimson yep. King so he there is, he's Fripp has uh, Fripp has featured on uh, three of Stephen's albums mm, interesting um, yeah and uh, which I didn't know but uh, yeah they, they, they are actually pretty good friends um, which is just awesome because I love Stephen Wilson. Dude, actually, I mean, today is December 9th, 2018, and I'm seeing him tomorrow in Nashville. Dude. Steven, I'm seeing him tomorrow in Nashville. Nice. Which is, which is going to be fun. But um, also, I think the Mel- I think they also brought the Mellotron to Prague Rock, too. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean the, the Beatles did do that. Right. The Beatles had done that in 67. Uh, you know, I yeah. can picture Strawberry Fields forever. And John Lennon was experimenting with that stuff, too. But, yeah, Mellotron was a very iconic sound for a lot of early prog rock pioneers. And this record really emphasizes that on songs like Epitaph and In the Court of the Crimson King. So, yeah. Uh, when you hear those, you just hear those, uh, you know, electronically produced like violins and orchestral sounds, um, right? String sections. Um, so, yeah, no, but but I think this it was definitely a big part of this record, and this was a record that changed a lot of people's minds. I don't know if people remember from the Fragile uh, episode we did in episode three, but this was also a hugely influential album for Yes when they were kind of trying to figure out their sound and what they wanted. Oh, to please, do. please tell that story. That's a that's a yeah, great story I with think, that relationship of yes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I almost said Ian Anderson. <laughs> wow. 
Um, John Anderson, uh, the front man of Yes, and Chris Squire, the the permanent member who stayed through all the records, um, and the bassist as well, they saw King Crimson perform 21st Century Schizoid Man live. They heard the record in the Court of the Crimson King, and they were blown away. And they said, this is where we need to be. This is where we, we need – that's the level we want to get to, we want to achieve. I'm glad that this band exists so that we know – what we want to do now something similar to this something outside the box let's push the boundaries let's be more like king crimson and they were like you know the drumming on this is spectacular we need a phenomenal drummer and then that's how they found bill bruford they went searching and bruford said hey i'm a pretty solid drummer and uh they were like great because we need a really really <laughs> yeah, solid drummer. I'm, a, I'm a pretty i'm a pretty solid drummer. yeah i, I mean I'm not, I'm not like one of the top 10 best drummers of all time but you know i'm, I'm all right <laughs> right um but uh, yeah, I just find that very interesting uh, that this was influential, you know, for, to yes, in a very direct sense. I've heard that story, but I know for a lot, a lot of other bands, King Crimson. And like I said earlier, King Crimson's probably not one that you've heard of, but it's one that has impacted so many if you've heard. Oh my goodness. If you've heard them. And like we mentioned earlier, um, was a launching pad for a lot of them, right? I think this was the first big group that Greg Lake was in. And eventually it was a landing pad kind of for Bill Bruford because he was with Yes First. Hi, this is Drew from Prognotes here with an advertisement. British people might say advertisement, but then again, British people might also say aluminium. Anyways, I'm here to tell you about our Patreon. You can join one of our tiers and help support the show. You'll also get some really cool benefits like... That's the paperclip we envisioned, was it? <laughs> and you can read all about that on our webpage. Visit patreon.com slash prognotes to learn more. Okay, back to the episode. Uh, but, you know, John Wetton started out with them. He, he went on to do Asia. Um, you know, Tony Levin, uh, who, who joined them in the, the 80s, also went on to do amazing stuff with with Peter Gabriel and a lot of other artists. Um, even, you know, Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe. So, um, but yeah, just, just a, a crazy, uh, a crazy amount of super influential and super amazing, amazing musicians went through this this group went to to work with Fripp at some point, so it's it's just really in, incredible. I find that uh, I find that really interesting to where you think that or when you said that, you know, yes, yes, saw King Crimson, and was like, that's where we need to go. That's where we need to be, you know. Right. And uh, when I was thinking when you when you said that, I was thinking, I wonder who that is now. Like who? What band now? In the in the world of prog rock is really, really stepping the stone of saying, you know, this is where prog rock should be going. And I think, you know, prog rock now is in, in a modern, and the modern progressive rock, it's, and uh, I, I, I feel comfortable saying this because I believe it's, I believe it to be true, but it's kind of turned into this progressive metal. And there's a lot of really, it's just really heavy. Um, yeah. It's more, it's more focused on, I believe the, kind of the structure of the music rather than the artful playing and the texture of the music. Right. I just don't see it as being as nuanced. I know we're kind of drifting yes. a little bit into the territory away from King Crimson and more about just the idea of modern prog rock in general. Uh, and we'll do that later on, especially when we cover more modern albums, which will be a bit out of my wheelhouse. I'll be honest. I think Destin knows much more about kind of more modern progressive rock. Than some I of them, some of them. I mean, some others I can't handle because I, it's, it's not really my cup of tea because it's just, it, you know, like I was saying, it's more about that, about that idea of keeping, it's about the form of the song and this, you know, really heavy, you know, all of, right. all this, all this metal stuff. 
rather than the, the, the tastefulness and the texture of the music, as well as the form. From what I've heard, it just seems just super in your face. There's, there's not very much nuance to it at all. You know what I'm saying? It's, yes. it's super impressive and super technical, but I feel like that's carrying most of its critical acclaim or even not acclaim, but it's kind of carrying it right now. It's, it's all riding on this one factor of musical complexity um, yes. rather than ingenuity, but that's just me. Um, yeah, uh, that we're playing the third track on the album. Uh, and I think this is a beautiful. This this one has, I think, the most soul from all yes. of the, the songs on it. The singing uh, of Greg Lake on this one is, I mean, it's super intense and gruff and and uh, just, yeah, just gruff is the right word to say on, on 21st century schizoid, man. On this one, it's not as uh, scratchy, screamy, you know, angry, distorted type of feel. It's just it's intense and soulful um, and it builds so yeah. well. This is a great song to look at when you look at how to uh, balance dynamics in a song, I think. Oh yeah. I mean, this, this, I mean, this song is just, it's so haunting and, and grainy, but orchestral and dramatic. It's just all of those elements is, uh, is what creates this an, an incredibly, incredibly emotional. And see, that's what's something that I always see in, uh, or that I find in um, progressive rock as well is that uh, it can be a little bit too cere cerebral without really hitting the emotion that the music is supposed to deliver to some to a listener. You know what I mean? Right, um, right. I mean, when you listen to something and you like it, it's because you had an, some kind of emotional attachment, whether it was, oh my gosh, I love how that bass drum hits me in the soul, or I love the lyrics because I can relate to those. That's why people cry when listening to music or they, you know, become rageful and, you know, you have these freaking like mosh pits and stuff. You know, it's emotion that this music is carrying and prog rock sometimes can get off the line of that because it's so heady. It, it does. You can't attach to it emotionally. And I right. think that's part of the reason why progressive rock did not become as popular as it could be because people were too focused on being so different. And see, that's I think that's why the great progressive rock albums came out in the early days when progressive rock was kind of forming and it didn't have a name yet because people were just trying to create good music while staying, while also delivering emotion. And that's right. why it's kind of gotten off the line a little bit. And this album does a phenomenal job of doing that. I mean, listening to the, it literally sounds like death. You know, yeah, like a great use of the Mellotron. I, I, we talked about it earlier, but that that kind of those strings that you hear, the, yeah, it's an electronic, uh, you know, keys uh, instrument called the Mellotron. Um, really cool instrument, super really vintage sounding instrument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the crescendo, the crescendos on the, of the song too are just so heavy. Mm -hmm. It's just it, it just like well, you talked about spills about emotion with this and i, I kind of want to real quick dive into um the the album cover simply because of the emotion behind that it's it's really interesting look up look up all the album artwork for it not just the cover though the cover alone is amazing i'm actually wearing a shirt that has the album cover on it right now um <laughs> it's uh but um so the the first image that you see on the on the front of the album is a man screaming a beautiful image i love that that artwork it's very very unique very oh, yeah i think and it was it was done by a small um 
baseball. A young artist. I mean, he was he was probably around their age. I think he might have even been in his teens, maybe 19 or something, when he did this for them. This was his first and last um, uh, album cover that he ever did. Interesting story. Uh, it's, it's a very sad story as well. Yeah. Um, he uh, he died a couple weeks later after giving him this. Yep. He, uh, he was young and he just dropped dead of a heart attack. The poor kid. And th- this was the only thing that he ever really did that was kind of a published, you know, famous work was this album artwork. But I, I think it's it's beautiful. Um, yeah. The inside, you'll see um, another image. Um, and that's supposed to be the Crimson King himself. All right. It's this weird. You see, you see this weird. Oh, I didn't know that creature uh with his hand uh being being raised he's like this weird almost like floating orb with a face on it it's really interesting um and uh frip has the original copies uh he wanted them which makes sense right (laughs) yeah Uh, but he's got the original copy on the front cover the the screaming man is supposed to be the 21st century schizoid man uh if anyone's that's cool but yeah that's that's who those two characters are is the crimson king and then uh the very front cover that you see um on the album is the 21st century schizoid man wow on and on the subject actually of of the you know the actual cover and the and the kind of the the behind the scenes stuff you know rather than just the music this is interesting but during during the mastering process of this there was actually a misalignment with the tape machine causing some distortion and loss of higher frequencies and which is it almost sounds intentional but it wasn't uh and and they tried fixing it for the u.s release because they obviously released the album in the uk and then they you know then they release it in the u.s maybe a week or whatever after and uh but the, but copying the master tape they had some quality loss obviously doing it doing for it being a generation removed right so they wanted to make a new stereo master but the tapes were lost right <laughs> and and, and but then they found them in 2003 and that's when they remastered it and they fixed those issues which they did that with uh, Mr. Stephen Wilson and um, right. I, I just I just find that to you know that that distortion and those that lack of higher frequencies and on the record sounds very quote unquote vintage but it, it's uh it almost sounds intentional because this is kind of a dark album yeah it is it is and and honestly and honestly to be to be quite frank with you i don't know i haven't really delved into the lyrics of the record but musically and i don't know if the lyrics depict this as well but musically this just sounds dark i don't know about the lyrics of it i mean you probably may know more about the meanings behind the songs and the lyrics i don't unfortunately but uh was that was that the case Do you know anything about the lyrics on the album um to be completely honest no this is one of the records that i look at and um i I listen to the music but i love i love this this song again it's so soulful and i just love the main refrain lyrically confusion will be my epitaph that's that's what's going to be on my gravestone is and then if i hear tomorrow i'll be crying and then trumpets come in sorry let's listen to it right now Um, i know i know uh, yeah this is a phenomenal phenomenal track um, very, very emotional. Um, but uh, I Talk to the Wind is very somber as well. It's peaceful, but it's pretty somber. It's a serious album in nature. Uh, a lot of heavy topics that you don't really hear about any kind of a love song, right? 
So I think that's another yeah. thing that is a staple of progressive rock is, yeah, you have love songs, but specifically they tackle other areas of life. Um, and the lyrics are, are not something that are, I don't want to be rude or crap for saying as simplistic as other music, but I feel like that's fair to say at the same time. They, tap, they tackle heavier concepts, something either philosophical, political, um, you know, emotional. Grant, um, not that love's not emotional, but you know what I'm saying. Um, usually the, the lyrics are just more a little bit intellectual and they make you think a little bit more. And this album was a clear cut example of that. Um, Epitaph, I Talk to the Wind, even Century, you know, uh, Schizoid Man, I mean, 21st Century Schizoid Man. Um, all of that is like the, the topics, you don't really like listen to it and think, oh yeah, I can sing to this. It's about a guy who's, you know, had his heart broken or, you know, a, a girl who should have been treated better and the guy's apologizing or whatever. Uh, it's it's very serious stuff. So even though I haven't really analyzed it as much as I have other bands like Pink Floyd or even Rush, it's um, you can just tell um, just even from a first listen that it's just the, the lyrics are much more serious in nature, which again is a big, big thing in prog rock, a big element of progressive rock. Well, we'll take a quick break real quick and we'll come back and we'll uh, finish talking about the last, uh, what, two songs. We have two songs left on the record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Moon, Moonchild and then obviously in the Court of the Crimson King. So we'll be right back in just a moment. Dude, something that just came to me while I was listening to that intro. And and actually, now that I think about this, when when I listened when I listened to this record and before coming on to the show or before before bringing this album onto the show, I probably have not heard this record in at least 3 4 5 years. I think I, I think you showed me back in high school, but since then I have not listened to this record from front to end. And something that actually came to my mind while I was listening to it, and I've done a fair amount of my searching of prog music and listening to all kinds of different progressive rock bands. I, I can hear, and it's interesting because I was, obviously King Crimson was first. I can hear elements in every single one of these songs that I hear in other bands that I know that are progressive rock. Interesting. Like when I when I when I was listening to Twenty uh, First Century Schizo Man. You know, that that kind of that part in the song that reminded me of Rush, like straight up. Yeah. That yeah. that was Rush. I was like, oh my gosh, that's Rush. That right there. Yep. And uh and listening to the intro of this, um, the vocal effect that kind of has that radio thing, that is such a Stephen Wilson thing to do. Yeah. You know, I heard you know the woodwinds, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like Genesis. Right. And it's it's really interesting. I mean this is almost like I'm finding the genesis of prog rock on this album right. when listening to these other bands. I can relate every single one of every single one of the elements in this record. I can relate it to another band that I've already heard of, and I can be like, "Oh, that sounds like that. Oh, that sounds like that." Except this came first. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, that's so interesting to me. It's so cool. Well, I have to wonder uh, on another topic when we're talking about this song. 
I think this was still Greg Lake, but it's so interesting how he can morph his voice. Oh my gosh, it, yeah. Like, 21st Century Schizoid Man does not sound like I Talk to the Wind or Epitaph at all. And then You're right. this one honestly sounds a bit different. Like it's still it's still kind of soft like how Epitaph and I Talk to the Wind are, but it sounds just a bit different. I'm thinking, is that a different singer? I think it's him. I think it's very it's very mournful. Yeah, that's the best word I can use to describe that song. Oh, Moonchild. Now, now we get into the the crazy them screwing around in the studio type of deal. Yeah, I I, I had I, we're gonna listen to this. Let's listen to this for just a second. I don't have the whole thing on here. <laughs> I don't have the whole thing on here. I have just a bit of it, but I want everybody to listen to this because I have a very unique, I believe, uh, con perspective to what's going on in this part right here. Obviously, I think some percussion comes into this, into the mix as well at some point. But it's very soft. It's very minute when it does. Yes. And I'll, I'll crank it back down here, but there it is. The kind of the percussion comes in and play, doodles around for a little bit. But, you know, I, it's really it's really really interesting when it, when I when I first heard this I was like what the crap is this like to be honest with you I was that was my reaction to it is like what the heck is going on I mean I listened to the full thing I listened to all of it and it it really uh it also kind of reminded me of 2112 a little bit kind of with with uh, Alex tuning the guitar in the very beginning of presentation or presentation discovery. holy yeah. crap yeah. discovery yeah <laughs> um golly that was horrible but uh you know it, it, it kind of reminds me of that of kind of the uh imagine yourself sitting in a room with a bunch of musicians around you and they're just kind of doodling and playing around and uh to picture that to me i, I mean i've been in that situation before yeah. obviously of doing that and it, it kind of brought me back to that and to me i had sort of a nostalgic feeling to that right that's that's a very very personal yeah relationship to that to that part of the song but i i've tried dude i've tried to cerebrally analyze the, the, why the heck they did that for 10 minutes so i've tried you know i don't know i don't know if this really was a like okay we we kind of planned this to be something artistic i mean obviously they they like frip wanted it on the record it was and they you know it, it made it on the record so there was some reason yeah but it's interesting you read the 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 title of the song and a lot of the songs all of them except uh i talk to the wind have yep. like these little parentheses uh titles these like subtitles almost that are you know including this section right and i'll have yes. quotes around it this does have that this says Moonchild parentheses including the dream and the illusion so yes i wonder if this was one of those like bullcrap things where they're like hmm, this reminds me of a dream so let's just call it that section and this doesn't i don't know what this is we'll call it the illusion or if they really had something like fripp had like a vision in mind he had some type of artistic vision some statement that he actually wanted to make with this i don't know because i feel like it could go either way because he's so out there that it could have been something 
you know, pre. I tried to look for stuff, dude. I tried to look for stuff about like him talking about Moonchild. Like, why did you do this? Yeah. Why did you do this? <laughs> There's no answer. <laughs> There's no answer. It's so amb- it's so ambiguous. I just don't I don't understand it. And well, as well, much as I like the record, I have to skip over that. I mean, the very beginning of Moonchild is fantastic. Yeah. It's it's very like I said, the word I use is mournful. That is the biggest. That's the best word I can come up with to describe that song. But the rest of it is like, what are you doing? <laughs> no, I have to agree with you. But it's funny. I think some of the musicians probably felt that as well. I think uh, Greg Lake said when he was talking in an interview about this, when they were first starting and they were making the music and everything, it was it was so disorganized. And he said some of that was great. In, in, in Okay, you can look at it from two ways, in a positive way. In a positive way, this led to a lot of creativity. This was great. We got a lot of ideas that we never would have captured. We never would have found these gems if we weren't just so out there. And we just, you know, threw caution to the wind. Doesn't matter what we do, let's just do it. In another sense, in a more negative, less effective way for communicating, you know, to people through your music, we didn't know sometimes what key we were in. A lot of the time, (laughs) he didn't want that. He didn't want that, you know, (laughs) you know, confined you know, mentality of, oh, you have to do it this way. There has to be a key. There has to be a tempo. There has to be uh, a, you know, all of this. He was just so out there. And, you know, sometimes I think that led to probably a lot of frustration for the other members. It was like, look, okay, I don't know what we're doing here. What, what, key, what even key are we in? What's the time signature? I don't even know. And it's like, no, it's, it's just super free form. Let's just do whatever we want. Yeah. So I think there are pros and cons to that kind of approach as well. But I think if I were in that situation, that would be very stressful for trying to and to add to that and to add to that i think that uh with with fripp is i think fripp was so open-minded like it's so open-minded that the lack of structure turned people off oh yeah oh you know and, and, and not even the lack of structure of the song but the lack of structure in the creative process oh yeah i'm i'm sure that's that's probably true uh, I'm sure some people you know, were like, "Hey, I, I can't, I can't keep doing this. I need some type of organization." <laughs> we needed Fripp, like we needed Robert Fripp and Prog Rock. He's he's an innovator. I mean, golly, um, did you actually know? Did you actually know oh, that yeah. he's left-handed but plays a right-handed guitar? I did not know that. That's didn't know that? Yeah, that was a um, uh, that was a, that was a little fun fact that I found. But yeah, he's he's left-handed, plays a right-handed guitar, which is actually uh, similar to a friend of ours, Marcus. Um, Oh, that's but, right. He is uh, left-handed. Yeah, Marcus he is also left-handed. Ringo was left-handed, but Ringo's left like a yep. right-handed kid. Yeah, like a right-handed yeah. drummer. And and that that gives a uh, an interesting. I mean, when you watch like his playing, he like led with his left hand. It just it it, it was weird to watch. But um, something I also uh, found out about Fripp as well, and and this is just kind of to back his resume of innovation, is that he kind of innovated new standard tuning. Um, did you know about this? I did not. No, okay, check this out, dude. He not only is he, I mean, obviously he's an innovator of the, the structure of music, but actually the instrument within, I mean, just within guitar itself. He he created this, uh, or uh, I don't know if he created it or he just made it popular. Whatever, I'm just going to say that he used it um, called new standard tuning, and it's all fifths tuning. So all of the strings are tuned to a fifth. Um, which gave a lot uh, it, the the structure that he could play with with his hand was a lot more was a lot lighter and also uh, just had a different sound to it. I mean, to to be simple with everything, 
Um, but it is, from what I've seen and what I saw online, it's incredibly difficult <laughs> to play a guitar that way when everything is tuned in fifths, right? Uh, which is on a musical scale, of course. But then he also has Frippertronics, which was uh, like he he had like uh, certain sound effects that he innovated, um, which I think the the name of that. I don't know if that was the name of the entire brand or a name of a particular uh, sound effect, but I, all I know is that it was called Frippertronics, which is yeah. kind of funny. I mean, yeah. it's just kind of laughable. But um, to kind of wrap this, I think we'll start wrapping this thing up. Um, we'll obviously end the record, or excuse me, end the record. We're going to end the podcast with the last song on the record called The Court of the Crimson King, which is just a freaking apocalypse, dude. Like, this song it's one that, of those where like oh the song's over and then give it five more seconds of silence and then it comes back in and it's <laughs> oh yeah it's the album ends as strong as it started and which is why i'm excited for everybody to listen to yeah. this but but uh what what what's the biggest thing that you enjoy about king crimson uh i think we, this is kind of obvious because we talked about it so much especially with frip but just that they they really push the boundaries I really do admire that, even though many times it doesn't do it for me personally. A lot of the times I'm like, ah, this just isn't my cup of tea uh, with yeah. a lot of the records. But uh, but the ones that do work really work. It's one of those that you say, wow. You really just have to stand back and say, wow, because that that is incredibly unique when you hear some of this music. You think mm-hmm. not only, I mean, again, and we've talked about this before in the show, a lot of times you got to think about the context, the historical context, what was coming out at the time, what kind of music was coming out. But, you know, I think it relates to today too. You know, I really listen to this right. and I'm thinking this still holds up compared to modern records with a lot of different, you know, th- through the ages, right? This came out in 69, right? We're almost approaching what, 50 years, right? We're almost yeah. approaching 50 years of when this came out. Granted, it'll, it's technically October it came out, but you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, you're going to let me segue into this really, really well. There's a, okay, there. Um, a 21st Century Schizo Man was actually featured. A little part of that song with Greg Lake singing was featured on a Kanye West song in 2010. Yeah, called Power. Yeah, and uh, I have a small clip of this. You'll you'll be able to hear it. I mean, it's the, the 21st Century Schizo Man, right? But if if you know, if you're a Kanye West fan or know the song, you'll know exactly what this is. I mean, check this out. So there you have it. Is is as as obscure King Crimson could be. I mean, you've heard bits and pieces of, of their stuff scattered around modern music today. And that song Power came out what 2010. Yeah. So you know, it's it's it can still be very uh, relatable today. Yeah, that it's still relevant. That a lot of this music, and I think that's part part of the reason we started the show is we care about it because we not only think that it was good for the time, which is in and of itself something that you should look at when you just study music in general. But also that it just holds up today that like I listen to these records and, and this one especially and say, I don't I don't hear any other music really like this. Right. This is just so right. unique. it's not only complicated, which I enjoy. I enjoy some complicated music, um, but it's also just super artistic. There was a lot of passion and soul that went into this and they wanted to do something new and they told some amazing stories with this. And, uh, you know, I know you're going to ask the question. So can I can I ask it this week? Can I ask you? I'm going to ask you this week. Why should someone listen to this record? I'm flipping it on you, Destin. Okay, yeah. This time, the tables have turned. (laughs) 
Uh, it was my hyena laugh. That was so embarrassing. Oh my Holy god, cow. that was awesome. That was like Scooby Doo. <laughs> I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make that a text tone. Make it a text tone, Dustin. It's I'm gonna make it a out. text tone. Uh, if you want the text tone of Drew Scooby Doo slash hyena laugh, email us at fognotespodcast. <laughs> yeah, that's it. All right, that's all today. No, I'm kidding. Uh, why so, should you yeah, listen to this, Dustin? Um, I, I. The reason why somebody should listen to this record is I believe that this album was let me let me let me relate it to this. In music today, we have we have all kinds of rock music. We got uh we got, you know, metal, punk, screamo, we got uh, I mean all kinds of rock music. Why somebody should listen to this album is because this was just as rebellious as punk in its efforts to expand what rock could be. Think about, you know, Paramore, these punk band or punk rock bands or these screamo bands or people who started getting who wanted to expand rock music and who are seen as today as, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that sounds just like this. That sounds just like this. King Crimson's the exact same thing, except just happened decades before all of all of the music that we would be talking about now. So, you know, why somebody should listen to this album is that this is just as rebellious as as punk or whatever in its effort to expand what rock could be. And if we could identify one guy who defined prog rock, it could arguably be Robert Fripp of this band. And (laughs) it's not only cerebral in certain moments, but it is very emotional. And the crescendos are just, like I said, so heavy. It's dramatic, and it really encapsulates you. It's a great record to start off when listening to progressive rock it's it's a great record to uh listen to if you've never heard of prog rock never listened to prog rock and want to get into it or want to explore this is a great record to do it with if you can get through moonchild end to end then I, i'll pay you five dollars i applaud you no, i'm kidding <laughs> oh man I, I have to just go out and say i'm kidding there's no <laughs> right oh my gosh I, I got a quick question for you before before we end this thing out because you're a bass player, you're a musician. How does how does this album affect you as a musician? Um, it definitely makes me. I I love Greg Lake. I really love Greg Lake, and I haven't studied him as much as I'd like to. And I think I'm gonna start listening to some of the stuff he did with Asia and a lot of other groups because I love his stuff with ELP. I love his stuff with, and I love his performance on this. And I I just love this record because as we mentioned earlier it's so soulful, it's so intense, and um, from a rhythmic standpoint, just talking you know about you know, specifically with Schizoid Man that song where it starts to really break down. It blows my mind. It was one of those things where you listen to it and you know for a fact they had to be looking at each other in the studio. This was not one of those things where it's like, okay, well, oh, yeah. we can just play this without looking. There has to be some type of visual communication to know. You know, just so it's so so difficult. It's so difficult. It's so crazy. And so I look at that and I'm like, I I love that they had to have a type of chemistry there, that they had to work that hard to make it as intense as it was and as effective as it was and so i like that word chemistry i like that word that you use yeah and i think that's important for you definitely have to have some chemistry to be able to pull that off yeah well and i think any successful band really has to have a lot of chemistry i mean that kind of is is a it's a very obvious statement um but but yeah 
Um, but it's also very uncommon. I mean, think about it, you know, with, with studio recordings nowadays, like a modern country record is just a bunch of five guys that were hired and they come in, they learn the music yeah. that day, they play it and they go home and get paid. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. You know, it's, it's very, um, there, there's not a whole, there's really not a whole lot of chemistry there. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's like we've played with each other before we know each other, whatever, but we're here just to read the music, play it and then go home and, you know, feed our families. Right. Exactly. And any, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good point making that. I love that word chemistry. That's, that's a, that's a great word to use. But yeah. And even though there were artistic differences, this band obviously had some, uh, some chemistry when they, when they were going on, they all really wanted to engage in a project that was going to expand, you know, other people's minds as well as their own, as well as their own, you know, minds of well, what music could be and, and what they could do. So, um, yeah. it challenges me as a musician to be, to be innovative too. You know, I want to, I want to make sure that what I'm doing and then also not do pull a moonchild. <laughs> 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 well, I don't, you know, I want to make sure that my music yeah. is, or, or that the music that, that, you know, I make as a musician challenges, you know, is, is not commonplace. But uh, at the same time, it's still accessible. You know what I'm saying? That, that yes. I like it. I think that's a big thing, too. Do you like it? That's a, that's a big thing I know for you and me, Destin. When, when we've made music with, with our group, Arcane Atlas, it it's really comes down to, am I happy with this? Do I think that this song is solid? And if not, hey, let's do better on the next record, right? And yep. I think a lot of musicians are like that. I think a lot of artists, what am I saying? Musicians, artists in general. It's like, okay, the last work we did, whether it be a film, whether it be you know a painting or you know anything or, or poetry, right? It's okay. Is this good? And you know, what can I do differently? You know, it's 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 the next project. But anyways, that that's kind of how. I, yeah, I, that's that's a great place yeah. to end this. I think that's a great. I think that's a great thing to say to end this thing. So. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. These are our prog notes, obviously. I hope you learned something new about this album uh, or inspired you to check it out for the first time. Please email us at prognotespodcast at gmail.com and to let us know what you like, didn't like about the record, if you've listened to it or want to listen to it. I've been Destin Frost, aided by Mr. Drew Brown here. And join us next time as we discover the past, present, and future wait, of Prog Rock. Wait, we didn't say what we're doing next time. Yeah, yeah we, I, I will. Or we're, I'm going to get Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, that seemed like the perfect way to just cut it off. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, like I said before, obviously, we're going to... Today, we're I'm gonna, sorry. I was no, like, you're good. no, don't end it. Next episode, episode six of Prog Notes, what are we going to be listening to? <laughs> I was so eager. I had to like mention. I was like, "What, what are you talking about, man? We have to mention this." Mm -hmm. um, next, next week we. Uh, well, I say next week. Next episode, we are doing uh, the Moody Blues record, "Days of Future Past." I Not to be confused with the X Men film that came out a, a few years ago. They're spelled differently. Past for this record is P A S S E D, like the past tense. Of it's a good thing you said that because I have no idea what the heck you're talking about. I'm sorry. Look, I, uh, my nerdy little comic book, you know, superhero film mind went to that. Um, but um, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, real quick, I don't want to get into this because I'll save it for the episode. But uh, we talked about concept albums with Sgt. Pepper, and this is a clear-cut example of a concept album. I know we already did Dark Side, which we agreed was a concept album um, as well. This is this is really cool though because this is what this came out much earlier, and this was very innovative for its time as well. I think you guys not normal. Not normally, the Moody Blues would be considered as a progressive rock band. Right, right. Which is going to be interesting because, to be honest with you, I have not heard any other Moody Blues record except for this one. Same. And it's in my top ten albums of all time. So thank you all for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much.